Hello and welcome to the first full-length Young Latter-day Saint Thoughts podcast episode. My name is Tommy Johnson. I am the host and creator of this show, and today we are going to be discussing the priesthood and temple ban regarding black members of the church. But before we get into it, I just want to go over a couple things. First, throughout this episode, I'm going to be sharing quotes um, from various sources, and you can find those quotes and sources among the show notes um, on my website, tommyajohnson.com slash yldsthoughts. Um, go there, and you'll find the show notes. Um, every quote that I use and the source where that quote came from will be there for you to check out. Uh, secondly, just a, another quick reminder, um, on Twitter and Instagram, at yldsthoughts, you can find me there um, and the show there. Um, I'll be asking questions and whatnot as the show progresses, um, but check those out. Um, and let's get into the episode. So let's get started. So as I mentioned in the brief introduction, a short podcast episode that I put out before, uh, on this show we're going to uh, look at aspects of church history, church doctrine, church policy, and church culture. And today we're going to look at um, a big part of early church history, um, and that is the priesthood and temple ban pertaining to black members of the church. So we're going to take a look at it, look at the history of it, look at some quotes, look at some um, different source material. And then at the end, I'm going to share my opinion um, of whether I think, based on what we have a record of, um, if the ban was instituted by God or by men running the church. And I'll be sharing evidences supporting what I think. You can grab your own uh, opinion at the end or form your own opinion by the end of this podcast. That's what I hope you can do. But we're going to share first um, just some basic history, some records, some quotes, and whatnot. So let's get started. So the church was founded in 1830, right? April 6th, 1830. And um, there were people joining the church from... Uh, a lot of different places across the country. Of course, the country at the time was um, smaller than it is now um, in terms of just states and whatnot, right, um, back in 1830. So uh, it, it, was, uh, it was started up in um, the Northeast, um, in New England. And as the church grew and as the church gained more members and as the church moved um, from the Northeast down to Ohio and Illinois and whatnot, kind of started making that move away from the coast, uh, the East Coast, and eventually ended up in Utah and settling Utah. Um, membership grew. And uh, one of those members was a man by the name of Elijah Abel. Now, Elijah Abel was a man who um, was both black and white. 
he was uh, biracial. And he joined the church. He was baptized um, in 1832. And four years later, um, after being a member um, for four years, he was 26 years old at the time, or at this time, uh, he was ordained a high priest by a man named Ambrose Palmer. Um, and back in that day, um, after you were ordained to um, the priesthood and to a certain um to a certain office in that priesthood, you were also issued an elder's license um, by the president of the church. So Elijah Abel, Brother Abel, is uh, baptized in 1832. He's ordained a high priest um, in January of 1836. And then in March, he's issued that elder's license by Joseph Smith. Um, and like I mentioned uh, in the little uh Beginning of the beginning of the podcast, I've got uh, a link to the actual document. We've got the elder's license there um, in Joseph Smith's handwriting. Um, it's been digitized. You can see it there. And so he was uh, given that license in 1836. And by the end of the year, late December of 1836, he's actually ordained a, a member of the third quorum of the 70. We have multiple quorums of the 70 uh, now, uh, 2020, and we did back at the, uh, the inception of the Latter-day Saint Church as well. And so he is ordained uh, as a general authority. Uh, he serves multiple missions, um, goes to Canada, um, other uh, serves other missions uh, in the States as well. And he, um, he eventually moves out to Utah. Um, so yeah, Elijah Abel, uh, a biracial uh, man ordained to the priesthood. Now, uh, in one of those years as well, 1836, there's another man, um, or rather, sorry, not 1836. In 1843, we've got another man. His name is Q. Walker Lewis, and he's a black man. And he is baptized in 1843 by Parley P. Pratt. In 1844, he's ordained to the priesthood by William Smith, who is Joseph Smith's younger brother. And he is um, ordained to the priesthood as well. And so why do I start off this story sharing these two um, men and their priesthood experiences? Well, they were we've got we uh, we have records of them holding the priesthood and um, being active members within the church prior to any priesthood ban or temple ban um, being put in place. And just saying one more thing about Elijah Abel, I, I forgot to mention this. Not only was he ordained to the priesthood or with the priesthood, and not, or, not only was he ordained as a high priest and a member of the 70, but while living in Kirtland with the saints after the Kirtland temple is, um, is built. He goes through the temple and he receives, um, the Washington and anointing ordinance. And that's important to just, just to, to know is that, uh, the Kirtland temple, um, as temples go, uh, only administered certain ordinances, um, and he received all the ones available at that time. 
um, the washing and the anointing, which are things that are still done today by Latter-day Saints. So he goes uh, into the temple and partakes of um, the ordinances that are done just within temples. And so both of these men are given the priesthood prior to the year 1852. And the reason why that year is so important is because that is the year the priesthood ban and the temple ban regarding um, black members of the church is put into place. And it's put into place by Brigham Young. And this, this ban has everything to do with race, everything to do with race. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's just race. And throughout the history of the ban, and at the very beginning, we'll start at the very beginning in 1852, but throughout the history of the ban, different reasons are given by church leaders as to why the ban even exists, why it's important, and why it must be followed. So the, from the very beginning, Brigham Young, again, the one who institutes the ban, in 1852, this is what he says in the same speech where he institutes the ban. So in the same long speech that he institutes the ban, he gives these reasons why. And I'll read his words. He says, what is, or, you know what, we'll go reasons first. The reason that he gives, and then we'll read what he says, but the reason he gives is that the ban is in connection with biblical curses, curses handed out by God or by prophets in the Bible. And he cites two different ones. And we'll, we'll, we'll look over those first, and then we'll get to his words. I almost jumped the gun there, but we'll, we'll talk about these curses, then we'll see what Brigham Young says regarding these curses. So he names two in particular. Two different uh, stories in the Bible um, are referenced by him. The first one is what is called the Mark of Cain. And this happens at the very beginning of the of the Bible with Adam and Eve and two of their sons, Cain and Abel. All right. Brief history lesson, or I guess Bible lesson, or both, whatever. Adam and Eve, right? First humans on earth. They have kids. Two of those kids are named Abel and Cain. And Cain has a moment of jealousy versus Abel, and he kills Abel. And God is unhappy, obviously, and he's frustrated at Cain for what he's done. And he punishes Cain uh, for what he's done, but um, Cain desires to have some sort of um, differing a difference between him and his seed and the rest of the human population. He wants there to be a difference because he's worried that in retaliation, people are going to come after him. And so God says, well, whoever kills Cain will receive a curse as well. So to make that clear, to make you, to make sure that you don't kill Cain, I'm going to put a mark upon him so that you don't mess with him and his seed. Because if you kill him, that'll be just as bad or worse um, than what he did to Abel. And so the language that's specifically used in the King James Version of the Bible says this, And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. 
End quote. That is it. That's all that's talked about this mark of Cain. Brigham Young, among others, and we'll talk about this later, but Brigham Young and among and, and others take this mark of Cain to mean black skin. This mark of Cain, this differing physical change that God put into effect, Brigham Young claims, was black skin. Those who have black skin are of the seed of Cain, the children of Cain. And that's a term that will come up as we go throughout this uh, history of the ban. But like I mentioned, there were two curses. So that's the first one, the mark of Cain. The second one is the curse of Ham. Now, again, a brief uh, Bible story. Ham is the son of Noah. Noah and the Ark Noah. So this is also in the book of Genesis. This is super early Old Testament um, record. Ham is the son of Noah. And there's an instance where Ham is walking around. He goes into a tent. He notices that his dad, Noah, is in this tent. And he's asleep. But Noah is asleep naked and nothing has nothing covering him. So Ham decides to leave the tent, and he goes and finds his two brothers, and he says, hey, dad is in the tent, and he's asleep, and he's naked. And those two brothers go into the tent, and they clothe their dad. They put something over him. And Noah eventually wakes up, and he knows that Ham came in first, and instead of covering him, Ham went and told his brothers instead and he's upset that ham did not cover him up first he's upset and so to ham he says and here's the scripture he says um cursed be canaan a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren and now i know throwing in that canaan might just seem out of place in the context. It all makes sense, but he curses Ham to be a servant of servants, um, and that he should be a servant of servants unto all of his brethren. So those are the two biblical curses that are used um, by Brigham Young, and I'll read the quote now from Brigham Young. Um, again, it's the mark of Cain, meaning the black skin, and the curse of Ham, which again Brigham Young and many others um, at this time use to say. Well, not only do black people have black skin for a reason, but they are meant to be slaves because they are also of this seed of ham. They're meant to be servants of servants. They're not just wealthy people servants or middle-class people servants. They are the servant servants. And this is used as a reason um, that slavery is okay. And so this is what Brigham Young said, February of 1852. He says, what is that, Mark? And he's talking about the mark of Cain. What is that mark? You will see it on the countenance of every African you ever did see upon the face of the earth or ever will see. Now I tell you what I know. When the mark was put upon Cain, Abel's children was in all probability young. The Lord told Cain that he should not receive the blessings of the priesthood nor his seed until the last of the posterity of Abel had received the priesthood until the redemption of the earth. If there was 
never a prophet or apostle of Jesus Christ spoke it before, I tell you, this people that are commonly called Negroes are the children of old Cain. Now, Brigham Young there does not mince his words. He makes it very clear why he believes a priesthood ban and the temple ban, and additionally slavery. We're not talking about that particularly in this episode, but he makes it very clear why these bans should be put into place. He says that they are based on Scripture, that Scripture tells him, and he knows from Scripture, that the mark of Cain equals black skin. Not just that, but the mark of Cain and having black skin also means you cannot receive the priesthood. And nor can you appreciate or, and receive the blessings that the temple gives. Another quote given about a decade later, he references the curse of Ham in regards to slavery. A quick quote here, he says, Ham must be the servant of servants until the curse is removed. Can you destroy the decrees of the Almighty? You cannot. Yet our, our, yet our Christian brethren think that they are going to overthrow the sentence of the Almighty upon the seed of Ham. So just quick context here. He's saying, no, this, the curse of Ham does apply to those with black skin. And no one can overthrow their curse of being slaves. And he says this, right? He says, yeah, our Christian brethren think that we're going to overthrow the sentence of the Almighty, <clears throat> excuse me, the Almighty upon the seed of Ham. He says this in 1863. That's, a, that's smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. Here he's saying, it is silly. Essentially, this is what he's saying. It is silly that people are fighting over the fact that black people are meant, destined to be slaves. They're going to be slaves, is what he says. And that it's silly that anyone, Christian especially, he, he, he makes that pointedly, that our Christian brethren, is what he says, think that they're going to overthrow the sentence of the Almighty upon the seed of Ham. Well, guess what, Brigham Young? They did. They did. And so there it's very clear why Brigham Young believes that black people should be held from receiving the priesthood. And again, I mentioned before even talking about Brigham Young, before talking about the ban, that there were, we have recorded black men who were without any restraint or without any extra look or anything given the priesthood and went through the temple, at least one. And so that was pre-Brigham Young. Now Brigham Young comes along, institutes this ban, and he says it's because they have black skin, and it's because, um, well, it's it's because they have black skin. And why that's a big deal, it's because, one, they can't receive the priesthood, and two, they can't go into the temple, and even three, they're going to be slaves for until God removes the curse. So that's, that is the, the earliest reason why church leaders say that the ban is approved of God. They say it is a it is from God because of these biblical 
stories. And those reasons exist all the way throughout the band, uh, the band's lifetime. But as time goes on, different reasons pop up. And another reason for why black people can't receive the priesthood or go into the temple that leaders give is because they claim that those who have black skin have black skin as a result of their lack of commitment to God in the pre-earth life. Now, the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that before we came to earth, we lived with God. And there were decisions made. We had the ability to choose like we do here on earth. And the big showdown or the big one of the big moments of the pre-earth life was um, the war in heaven, which was um, two different groups who either sided with Satan and a plan that he had for mortal life, or you sided with Jesus and his plan for mortal life. And some chose Satan, and some chose Jesus, and there was a big war, and Jesus won. And what is theorized and taught by certain leaders is that those with black skin chose Jesus, but not as much as those with white skin. And because of that, as those spirits came down to earth, there was a distinction made based on their commitment that uh, that resulted into differing races of people. And those who were not black were the valiant ones, and those who were black were good, but not as good, not as valiant, not as committed. Now, one person who pushed this idea was an apostle named Mark E. Peterson, and he said um, the following in 1954 in a talk entitled Race Problems as They Affect the Church. And again, this is 1954. He says, think of the Negro cursed as to the priesthood. Are we prejudiced against him? Unjustly, we're sometimes accused of having such a, such a prejudice. This Negro, sorry, this Negro who in the pre-existence life lived the type of life which justified the Lord in sending him to the earth, the lineage of Cain, Cain is brought up again, the lineage of Cain with a black skin and possibly being born in darkest Africa, if that Negro is willing when he hears the gospel to accept it, he may have many of the blessings of the gospel. If the Negro is faithful all his days, he can and will enter the celestial kingdom. He will go there as a servant, but he'll be there. So, Elder Peterson makes it, again, very clear that black skin is, in his mind, a result of some choice and not good choices. And he even makes a comment that is very 
linked to just him. I haven't heard this shared by anyone else, but he makes it clear that he also believes that salvation um, isn't even an option in terms of, uh, or, or salvation is not an option for black people to the fullest, even after this life. He talks about them being sentenced as servants forever. And so he shares those thoughts in 1854. Another apostle by the name of Bruce R. McConkie shares his thoughts uh, 12 years later in 1966 in a book that he writes called Mormon Doctrine. And he says this, Negroes are not equal with other races where the receipt of certain spiritual blessings are concerned, particularly, particularly the priesthood and the temple blessings that flow therefrom. But this inequality is not of man's origin. It is the Lord's doing, is based on eternal laws of justice, and here's the important part, grows out of the lack of spiritual valiance of those concerned in their first estate, meaning part one of this whole existing thing, the pre-earth life, and then we've got earth life, and then post-earth life, if you will. Part one, first estate, he says that they're black skin and the repercussions of not holding the priesthood and not being able to go into the temple that grows out, quote, of the lack of spiritual valiance of those concerned in their first estate. So this is reason number two that is shared by leaders during the lifetime of the ban. Reason one, Brigham Young says, it's because of biblical curses, this mark of Cain, and this curse of Ham. Years go by, leaders say, well, also, it could be because in this whole pre-existence thing, they weren't as valiant as every other race. And then there's a third reason that's given throughout this time, and that reason is only God knows. Only God knows. The First Presidency in 1969 said, Negroes were not yet to receive the priesthood for reasons which we believe are known to God, but which he has not made fully known to man. Reason three. It's not, it, it could be biblical curses, it could be this pre-life theory, this pre-earth theory, but we don't know. We don't know. Well, the ban did eventually end. We'll, we'll get back to these reasons, don't worry. But the ban did eventually end in 1978. So over a century and 26 years, 126 years, this ban existed. But in June of 1978, the church releases what's now known as Official Declaration 2 and says this, aware of the promises made by the prophets and presidents of the church who have preceded us, that at some time in God's eternal plan, all of our brethren who are worthy may receive the priesthood, and witnessing the faithfulness of those whom the priesthood has been withheld, we have pleaded long and earnestly in behalf of these our faithful brethren, spending many hours in the upper room of the temple supplicating the, uh, for the, supplicating the Lord for divine guidance. He has heard our prayers and by revelation has confirmed that the long promised day has come when every faithful worthy man in the church may receive the holy priesthood 
with power to exercise its divine authority and enjoy with his loved ones every blessing that flows therefrom, including the blessings of the temple. So the ban ends in 1978. Generally, the ban or the 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 ban ending is met with jubilation. Most members are very happy and excited. And the first uh, black man who receives the priesthood post-ban, right? Because we had black men receive the priesthood pre-ban. But the first post-ban, his name was Joseph Freeman. He's still alive, right? Because 1978 wasn't that long ago. Um, yeah, and his name's Joseph Freeman. He was ordained uh, three days after the ban is officially nixed. Well, Bruce R. McConkie is still an apostle at the time. And as I mentioned before, he wrote in 1966 that black men, just black people in general, but black men specifically in regards to the priesthood, can't receive the priesthood because they made poor decisions in an earlier life. Now, in August of 78, so two months after, or yeah, two months after um, the ban is lifted, he says this to a group of BYU students. Um, he's speaking a, a devotional of some type, and he says, quote, forget everything that I have said or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light, a knowledge that is now come into the world. He says, just forget everything. Just forget everything that I said. Whatever I said in 1966, delete it. Whatever Brigham Young said in 1852, delete it. He mentions George Q. Cannon, another church, early church leader. Forget it. Just forget everything in regards to what is now being taught. Now, it's very easy, I think, for Bruce R. McConkie to say, just forget, just forget about what happened. Just, you know, 120 some odd years. Just Pretend it didn't happen, or at least pretend the reasons that we gave weren't taught. Just pretend that we didn't say black people were cursed from the Bible. Just pretend or just delete from your mind as best as you can that I taught or that other people taught that black people are black because they weren't as good as every other race in this pre-mortal life. Just forget about it. And I think it's it's very easy for him to say, as one and a possible two, as a white guy who never experienced these restrictions in his family or himself head on. They were always from uh, just viewing other people's situation. So Bruce R. McConkie never had to, to live with or to was never affected by this ban, right? And so um, I think it's very easy for him to just say, Forget about what was taught. Uh, forget about why it was taught. Um, 
forget about the reasons we gave about why the ban was uh, important or just any, you know, just forget about it all. And, and I've, and I'm guilty of this, but I think a lot of times when we speak about the ban, we think about it as a priesthood ban. And obviously it was, um, but that's not what it, that's not what the ban was in its entirety. It was a priesthood and temple ban that affected black men and women. And I really do think when we talk about the ban, we forget about the effects or we accidentally silent the the history of how the ban affected black women. And this is what I mean by that. We're going to go back to Elijah Abel, all right? Elijah Abel is ordained uh, with a priesthood. He's ordained as a high priest. He's ordained as a member of the Quorum of the Seventy. And he goes through the Kirtland Temple. He receives uh, the washing and anointing ordinances that take place in the temple. Well, he moves out to Utah eventually, the year after the ban takes place. So he's there in 1853. By this point, he's married, and he eventually has children. So he has this family that he has been leaving at certain times to serve missions, preaching this gospel that he has come to love. And a very unique part of the gospel is the idea that one, families can be together forever. That those that we meet in this life, we can fall in love and we can create a family that and it doesn't end at death. And one, I don't think that's unique on its own, but the, the, what does make it unique is that for this to happen, a sealing ordinance within the temple has to take place. That includes the members of the family. Well, Elijah, his wife, and I don't know if the kids were were born yet, but at least he, at this point, he is married. And Elijah comes to Utah, and uh, ceilings weren't taking place in Kirtland when he was there, and so this is his first opportunity to participate in a sealing ordinance. And he goes to Brigham Young, and he says, Hey, I want to be sealed to my wife. And Brigham Young says, no, you can't be. As a black man, as a biracial man, because you have the blood of the seed of Cain, you cannot experience that ordinance and that blessing. And he's devastated understandably. And 20 years later, Elijah Abel, still alive, he goes to the current, the the president of the church uh, at the time, and I I can't remember who it was, and I apologize, but he goes and he asks again, he says, can my wife and I, and their children have been born by now, can my family be sealed? And they say, no, you can't be. And so Elijah 
obviously eventually passes away, not knowing what the future holds for his family. And same goes his wife. And same goes for every black couple or any couple where one or the other has um, any sort of black history uh, and their ancestry uh, until 1978. And so, yeah, there is a priesthood ban in there that affects the men, but uh, black women and black families are also affected for over 120 some odd years. No ceilings no ceilings and i and i know those listening who are members of the church understand how important that that how important ceilings are to believing members so imagine yourself being a believing member that you are or may not be but just imagine you know the importance of this this event where you are not just married for time but for all eternity and you're told no because of something that you never did based simply on the color of your skin truly it disgusts me it is so it is so sad it is so sad now where redemption does come it comes through Jesus. It comes through Jesus Christ. And an additional ordinance or, or a, an additional doctrine that is taught in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that temple ordinances can be done for those who have passed away. And so I know that many, if not at, at this point all, um, I mean, I won't make that claim though, but I do know that many, including Elijah, we've uh, Elijah Abel and his family have been sealed by a proxy. And as Jesus does, he's made this awful situation good. Um, that obviously doesn't clear the disgust of the time or the reality of what it was. But it's just an evidence of Jesus being bigger and better than all of us. So, that's the history of the ban. That is from 1852 to 1978. Those those are the reasons that were preached on the pulpit, why the ban was a thing, biblical curses were given as a reason, uh, individual uh, behavior in a pre-mortal existence were given as a reason. Even the reason of we don't actually really know, but God does, was given as a reason. With all this, what what do I think? What is my opinion? And I understand my opinion. Uh, probably, I don't know if it means much to anyone or anything, but I'm going to give you my opinion and give you some evidence of what I think. Do I think that the ban was inspired by God? No, not at all. Not at all. I think the restriction was not inspired by God, but inspired by the racist thoughts, attitudes, and practices of the day in 1852 
And here's why. So as I mentioned before, Brigham Young gave those those two uh, curses as a reason, the, the mark of Cain and the curse of Ham. Well, unfortunately, Brigham Young was not the only Christian church leader, or even just Christian at the time, abusing the Bible as a reason to persecute black people in the United States. Obviously, it's a worldwide thing, but especially in the United States at that time, slavery was very much legal, but also very much a debated topic in terms of why is this okay? And the reason given by so many people were, well, it's biblically allowed. And this curse of Ham is especially because it gives that specific servant of servants line is used by church leaders. It's used by Jefferson Davis of uh, the Confederacy. It's used by... Um, yeah, Christians across the country to prove that slavery is not only like okay in God's eyes, but it is because of God that slavery exists. And then the mark of Cain is interpreted by some, again, as Brigham Young interpreted it, the mark as being black skin. And that curse of, or that mark of Cain scripture is abused by people all over world history. It's used in anti-Semitic um, attacks. It's used in all these ways to say, well, this group of people looks different in some way. We're going to tie that back to this quote, Mark of Cain, end quote, that is so ambiguous, but we're going to say this means this physical aspect, and that's why they are bad. And so the reasons that Brigham Young gives for instituting the ban are not unique. That doesn't make them any less bad or egregious or horrible. To me, that just proves that he was hopping on some sort of train that was popular at the time. Another reason why I think this is not inspired by God at all are the now public disavowals of specific theories by the church regarding the ban. In an essay released in 2013 on the church's website, this is said, quote, Today the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life, that mixed-race marriages are a sin. We didn't even get into that, but um, but yes. They disavow that mixed-race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. So when the church releases this, members and non-members, but especially members, are forced to do something, and, and they're, they're forced to choose either today's church's stance or 1852 to 1978 church's stance. You can either say, you can either agree with none of those reasons were legitimate or that band length time of those reasons being legitimate. They both can't be legitimate. They can't. So what are you going to choose? I choose 
today it's church and that those theories were just that they were just theories they're bad they were incorrect they were um abhorrent theories and so do you want to know some other people who even before the ban were confident that those were theories well here's one man's recollection current first presidency member of the church dallin h oaks shares um shares these thoughts um he shared these these uh, thoughts i'm about to read in 2018 um marking the 40th anniversary of the ban being lifted uh, he says the following he says as a young man studying and working in the legal profession I lived in the Midwest and the East for 17 years. The restriction on the ordination of temple blessings, uh, sorry, the restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry, almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized them and sought for reasons. Now here's the key. He says, I studied the reasons then being given and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. So he says that he... In sincerity, he, he prayed and said, is it because of this? Is it because of this? Is it because of this? Because these are the things I'm learning at church. And he felt personally that none of those were the reasons. He says, along with that, he relearned that God doesn't always give reasons to certain things. And I agree with him there. And I agree that God did not, or I, I, I believe that God did not, uh, institute this ban at all, that it was the acts of Brigham Young and that it became more tradition than any sort of doctrine or any sort of inspired policy. Now, who else, again, who else believe this? Well, there are quotes that are secondary quotes, meaning that general authorities in the past told someone something and that someone is telling us what the general authority said um, that show that general authorities who were in positions of leadership during the band's existence didn't completely believe that the ban was something inspired. Now, one of these experiences is shared by a man named Eugene England. He had a, an experience with then President Joseph Fielding Smith. Sorry, yes, Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh, lots of Joseph Smiths going around. So um, let me read you this experience. And it shows to me again that even leadership then didn't know exactly why this ban was even a thing. The president of the church didn't know. This is Mr. England speaking. He says... 
or Dr. England, I should say. He says, I told President Smith about my experiences with the issue of blacks and the priesthood and asked him whether I must believe in the pre-existence doctrine to have good standing in the church, right? This is reason number two that we went over. Um, his answer, President Smith's answer was, yes, because that is the teaching of the scriptures. I asked President Smith if he would show me the teaching in the scriptures with some, trepida some trepidation because I was convinced that if anyone in the world could show me, he could. He read over with me the modern scriptural sources and then, after some reflection, said something to me that fully revealed the formidable integrity which characterized his whole life. No, you do not have to believe that Negroes were denied the priesthood because of the pre-existence. I have always assumed that, I have always assumed that, because it was what I was taught, and it made sense, but you don't have to be in good standing, because it is not definitely stated in the scriptures, and I have received no revelation on the matter. President Smith, prophet, president of the church, tells this member of the church, no, you don't have to believe in this specific thing to be in good standing, meaning an active temple, you know, recommend holder of the church. You don't have to believe in this thing because it's not taught in the scriptures. It is something that I've been taught. It's what I've been taught. And I think that just shows the string of this belief. It was taught by Brigham Young. And from there, taught from president to president to president to president. And through that, by member, by member, to member, to member, to member, I think it just became folklore. It became a tradition. It became, that's just how it is. And... It's unfortunate that it took so long to reverse the ban, but this is why I think it took so long. And this is my last reason why I'm convinced that it was a ban of inspiration from culture and from the world and not from God, is how revelation comes when the whole church is involved. Obviously, as members of the church, we believe in personal revelation, and that comes from a one-on-one -on -one type experience, us and the Lord. But in terms of church-wide revelation, it works a little bit differently. And President Hubie Brown shares how this happens. He's a former member of the First Presidency. He was an apostle, an, an apostle for a long time. And he shares this in his memoirs as told or as written by him and as edited by his grandson. He says this, an idea is submitted to the first presidency and 12. So 15 people in total thrashed out, discussed and rediscussed until it seems right. Then kneeling together in a circle in the temple, they seek divine guidance. And the president says, I feel to say, this is the will of the Lord. That becomes a revelation. It is usually not thought necessary to publish or proclaim it as such, but this is the way it happens. So revelation in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not come about in the fantastic 
kind of biblical or ancient scripture type of way, right? We think of um, the burning bush, right? Moses and the burning bush in the Bible. We think of uh, Lehi in the Book of Mormon having a dream and there being a vision directing him to take his family to um, or out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. In a church where we have a first presidency and a quorum of the twelve apostles, Revelation comes as this group of fifteen men meet together. They discuss things, they rediscuss things, they thrash things out, as President Brown uses that word. And then they take that consensus to the Lord and pray about it. And again, I'm going to make this very clear. This is my personal opinion, okay? My personal opinion. I think that it took to 1978 to have a group of 15 white men to have a, a, a consensus that the ban should be done. That's what I think. I think it took, I don't, I don't think it took God until 1978 to say, all right, the band is done. I think it took until 1978 to have 15 white men say, this is the best decision for our entire church. And then be ready to announce that and take on the positive repercussions of what that would bring. And that is my that, that is my opinion. <clears throat> that is my opinion. Um and that's my opinion based off of other stories and experiences shared by President Brown, who and I'll, I have this quote right here from him, who quote, never believed this policy had the slightest doctrinal justification. So his whole life, or maybe not his whole life, I don't know, but especially during his his apostleship, did not think the ban had any sort of doctrinal justification, as he says. And in the 60s, so a decade before the ban is even uh, lifted, he advocated for the lifting of the ban as an apostle, and other apostles agreed with him. But other apostles disagreed with him. And you know what? Having that difference is the reason why, that difference of opinion is the reason why nothing was changed. And then we get to 12 years later or, or, or a decade later, we get to 1978, and now it's reversed. The ban is lifted. And I think it, just, it shows a couple of things. It shows the emphasis of the importance of agency making choices and decisions i think it shows the humanity of prophets and apostles and i think everything in this whole picture of everything shows the mercy of jesus and like i said in my brief introduction i am an active believing member of this church and I am disgusted by this ban.
I think it's horrible that it happened. I think it is great. I think it is great that it is gone. And I'm grateful to believe in a being like Jesus who who whose ultimate power is greater than any of ours and i hope because as a as a believing member i do believe in some sort of afterlife right and i hope that those who instituted and pushed for the ban uh have a change of heart and have repented. I truly do hope that. And in terms of, um, you know, those, those, those are my thoughts regarding um, the past. So what are, you know, what about the future, right? What kind of thoughts should we have about the band? Well, I mean, I guess I just shared some of mine where I think that there is some sort of reconciliation that comes from um, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where I put my faith. One other way we can think about it, um, there's a man, he is currently the first counselor in the Young Men's General Presidency of the Church. His name is Ahmad Corbett, and he is a black man. And him and his family joined the church two years after the ban was lifted in 1980 in Philadelphia. And this is how he thinks about the ban as a black man. Now, I want to make it clear on two things. One, I don't, I'm not saying, well, this is what a black man has said. This is what you must believe. I'm not saying that. But I'm also saying this is a black man and his beliefs. And as a black member of the church, I do believe that he um, has a, a, a unique setting to say, to talk about the ban that I don't have as a white man. All right? And so this is what he says. He says, regardless of how the priesthood ban came about, I'm convinced our Heavenly Father is forwardly focused on using it to show the world his works and his power to unify his earthly children of all colors in peace and love. I feel he wants each of us to have the same higher focus. So Brother Corbett here is focusing on the future and is focusing on the bandless church and is focusing on how we do teach that all children or all people are children of God, that we're, that we are equal. That is in the scriptures. Remember how president Joseph Fielding Smith said, I can't find in the scriptures, the reason for this ban. Well, what you can find in the scriptures is a God who loves all and a God who is no respecter of certain persons, a God who sees everyone equally. And that is what our president of the church teaches us today. And the most recent conference, general conference in October, so just two months ago, this is what President Russell M. Nelson says. He says, I assure you that your standing before God is not determined by the color of your skin. Favor or disfavor with God is dependent upon your devotion to God and his commandments and not the color of your skin, which is incomplete difference to what Brigham Young said. What the current prophet teaches 
is that we are all equal and that our skin color in terms of our devotion to God means nothing. It doesn't affect us now. There's no past decisions by ourselves in a pre-earth life or by others, biblically, a canyon or a ham, that affects us. We are responsible for our own life. We are responsible for our own selves. So the ban, I believe, was man-made. The ban, I believe, was an egregious error. I also believe in a Jesus that can heal all wounds. And at the same time, believing in that Jesus, knowing that there are people who are who were significantly hurt when the ban was in existence, and people now who have a hard time viewing the ban. And both of those feelings, those hurt feelings, and those uncomfortable with the history, or frustrated at the history, or angry at the history, or any sort of those feelings, those feelings are valid as well. I'm not going to tell anyone how to feel about the ban. I'm just sharing my own thoughts, <clears throat> my own feelings about it. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this first episode going over the ban, the priesthood ban, the temple ban regarding black members of the church, the history, my thoughts on it and whatnot. Thanks for listening. There'll be another episode out soon. Again, make sure to go follow YLDS Thoughts on Instagram and Twitter, and I'll talk to all of you soon. Thanks. Thank you.